Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. Today's program is part two of The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, presented by Alaska Common Ground. The discussion features a panel of experts focusing on the difficulties of addressing Anchorage's housing needs. The event was recorded on March 18th at the Anchorage Museum. We'll begin with moderator Thea Agnew-Bemben. Thank you to all of you for spending your evening here tonight. Um, of course, the topic of this series is housing, something that's so fundamental for each one of us that I think sometimes we can take it for granted and not really understand the dynamics at work with making sure that housing is available um, to all of us at the different stages of life and at the different um, places on the income scale that all, all of us might find ourselves. So tonight we're going to be talking, as Dick mentioned, about some of the barriers to developing new housing in our community. If you were able to come to the last forum, we focused a lot on learning about the supply of housing and how that's changed over time here in Anchorage. And some of the, the summary that of, of the, the panel's uh, conversation was really that we haven't had very much new development um, here in Anchorage in the last 10 years. And so tonight, you're going to hear a little bit more in detail from our various experts here on the stage about what are some of the reasons for that? Why are we having a difficult time keeping up with the needs, um, the demand for housing in our market? So we're going to start off tonight with my friend and colleague, Shanna Zuspan, um, who's going to start uh, the presentations. And then we'll hear from Tyler Robinson from Coquitlam Housing Authority, uh, Michelle McNulty from the Municipality of Anchorage, and Greg Serbana from Widener Apartments, um, which is one of the, you might not know it, but one of the, maybe the largest owner of, of apartments here in Anchorage and across the country. Um, so we're going to pause on our discussion for a minute, hear from each of our presenters, and then we will have um, some robust question and answer um, with all of them. So I'm gonna hand it over to Shanna. Thank you, Thea. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Shanna Zespan, and I was asked to talk today about um, really the financial side of housing and why housing doesn't pencil with a particular focus on the multifamily rental housing market. Um, but before I jump into some of the slides and the data around that, I just wanted to share some observations around sort of why does this matter? Why are we here talking about the barriers to new housing? Um, just from my own personal experience with housing, um, back in 2001, when my husband and I were planning to move to the Sacramento region, we ordered a magazine called Apartments.com and it came to our cramped, tiny apartment in Boston. Um, and we flipped through the pages and we saw many, many different apartment communities with acres of green grass and flowers and crystal blue swimming pools. And for two kids born and raised in Anchorage, we could not believe our eyes. For only $790 a month, one of these apartments could be ours. So we immediately jumped on the opportunity and then 14 months later, we realized that apartment option was really nice and affordable, but we wanted to be in downtown Sacramento where all the action was. Um, and then a couple of years later, we opted for a pretty affordable ranch style home in the suburbs for our growing family. 
So I would say within a 10-year period, we got an opportunity to experience three different housing types that were all readily available and pretty affordable. Um, fast forward to moving back to Anchorage, and I would just say that not all housing opportunities are made available here. Um, if you, by chance, love split-level homes built in the 1970s and 80s that need updating, this is your place. Um, but for other housing types, maybe not so much. And unfortunately, for far too many people in our community, quality affordable housing is simply out of reach. Um, we know we need more housing for our homeless population. We know we need more affordable housing for working people. But I'm gonna talk a little bit about a different type of housing. Um, we really need more housing in our urban core for economic development purposes and for placemaking. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, we really need housing that's located in our core areas that is um, such as downtown or Spenard or even in our commercial corridors in East Anchorage or South Anchorage. Um, critically important is that the housing bolsters neighborhoods, creates vitality where more is needed and inspires us to walk to the nearby store or bike to our friend's home. Really, we've seen the housing strategy be a cornerstone and a successful cornerstone of redevelopment efforts throughout the country. We've seen it work in Portland, Denver, Seattle, San Francisco, and even smaller communities like uh, Boise, Idaho, Bend, Oregon. Really, to create a, a vibrant city, we need housing that inspires us to walk and to bike and to be in the urban core. But that's by all means not the entire part of the puzzle. We do love our suburbs. It's not an either or thing. Um, we really need housing of all types, commensurate with what the market will sustain. So why hasn't this happened? Why aren't we seeing this type of housing? Um, you know, the planner in me would love to see artist lofts in East Downtown or stacked flats at 8th and K, but the economist in me knows that that, those, that type of housing isn't very feasible from a financial standpoint. And really, it's for two reasons. Um, when you run the pro formas on the revenue side, the amount of rent you're going to get is just unknown. How much are people willing to pay and how deep is the market? We really don't know. And then on the cost side, our construction costs are just extremely high. So this graphic kind of gives you an overview of the different types of housing um, in our market. This comes from our 2040 land use plan. Um, on the far right is kind of that mixed use, stacked flats, urban um, housing that I'm talking about. And then on the far left is more of the single family detached or sort of lower density housing. And for the most part, as you move across to the, to the right hand side of the screen, the financial feasibility tends to decrease. Um, but does that mean we should continue to build mo mostly single family housing? Right now, single family detached makes up 50% of our housing stock. And I think the answer is really no. From a very practical standpoint, there is um, not enough land left in the Anchorage Bowl to allow us to meet our needs in the future just by building at the densities that we've been building in the past. Um, secondly, if we're going to really be serious about revitalization of our urban core, we need housing that brings a lot of people to the sidewalks and to the streets. Um, and the lower density housing just does not do that. And then finally, from the market's perspective, we're being told um, through different think tanks and universities that participate in focus groups and surveys that demand is changing, that it's evolving, that we are no longer gonna be seeing 50% of our housing stock single family. The forecasts show that dropping to about 25%. 
and the multifamily growing to being even a third of our housing stock, where it's now about 11%. Um, so we know we need to build for that evolving and emerging demographic, um, but <clears throat> does it make sense to attract investment now, and how financially viable is that? So in addition to the, the revenues being uncertain because the market demand is, is still emerging, the other big issue is really the construction costs. So I worked with, with Greg and with Tyler on this chart, and it really looks at the, just the hard costs, the construction costs, so not your land and any of your other entitlement or permitting costs. Um, and you can see for projects that were built in the lower 48, the cost per square foot at about $120 versus about $240 here in Anchorage. So almost a 50% differential. This compares projects, again, built in the lower 48 with projects that have either been built here in Anchorage or at least designed far enough to get a cost estimate. Um, you know, we, we've seen other studies that have the cost differential being 30%, but, but we've known for a while now that our costs are high. And, and a lot of us have sort of thought about why that is. Um, and there's some truth to the notion that it's you know, transporting materials up to Anchorage adds costs to, to building here. But in this study, we did look at all different construction divisions, even those where there isn't a lot of raw materials being transported, and the costs were still higher here in Anchorage. Um, so, you know, it's possible that a lack of competition with large-scale general contractors um, leads to higher bids when, when the bids come in. So, Given that, you know, this idea that there is this evolving demographic of folks who will want to live in a more urban area, um, but we don't know, again, how deep that market is, how much people will pay, and the notion that the construction costs are pretty high, I would love to ask this group, you know, where would you invest your money? So I don't know if folks can see the numbers up here on the screen, but there's two options. Say you have $5 million in cash. Um, on the left-hand side is a 34-unit, three-story housing project. And on the, on the right-hand side is where you could potentially invest your $5 million in uh, Standard & Poor's 500 Mutual Fund, okay? So um, <clears throat> if you're gonna do the housing project, it's gonna cost you about $9 million to build, and um, you're gonna go ahead and secure rent for say a one and two bedroom apartment renting from say between $1,500 and $1,700 a month. That's going to get you about 650,000 in gross revenue. Um, not too bad on the five million dollar investment, but you still have to go ahead and take out, say, seven percent for vacancy as folks move in and out of the apartment. Um, take out the cost of property taxes, utilities, routine maintenance, capital reserves, professional property management, and now you're left with about 415,000 um, in net operating income. <coughs> to with that, with that cash, you need to make de pay debt service for the loan that the bank provides. And in this case, it's about a $4 million loan. So that eats away another $230,000 in income, leaving you with that $185,000 in annual cash, um, giving you a cash-on-cash -cash return of a little less than 4% or 3.7%. Um, you know, industry standards would say that needs to be at least 12%. I would say even 15 or 20% is where you want to be for that that part of the return. And the reason is it's the riskiest type of investment you could participate in. You are on the hook for a $9 million project that really can't be phased. You're, you're wondering how the demand's gonna play out, how much people will really spend, and how many people will sign up 
on the day that the, the apartment com community opens. Um, you're again at risk for cost overruns, any regulatory or permitting hurdles that you face, and your exit strategy requires that you sell this asset in order to get your money back. Um, so it's a, it's a risky investment, and that's why with the risk-reward relationship, the returns should definitely be higher. Um, on the far right, they tell me that the S&P 500 yields 10% a year. I don't know if that's always true, but at the same time, you're able to move your money in and out of the stock market, um, and your exit strategy is much more simple. So, you know, we have a quote over here from a property owner that we worked with, and ran some numbers, you know, it's, it was easier to make money at night sleeping with money in the, in the stock market than to try to figure out how to make a, a larger scale housing project pencil in our community. The returns simply aren't there. And so the, you know, the reason for this data is really to dispel this myth that, you know, the rich are getting richer building multifamily housing here in Anchorage. Um, instead, I would suggest that we, we kind of shift our thinking around how do we attract you know, rich people really their money to these projects so that we can make positive change in our neighborhoods and our communities. Um, this slide just kind of highlights how the return levels and the pro forma analysis results in a lack of just actual funding to build the project. Um, and so <clears throat> really when you're thinking about a project and you know, a, a more normal um, capital stack or sources of funds would be like 70 to 75% of the total development cost coming from the bank and the rest from equity. In our community, when a bank goes out and, and decides to make a loan to a project, they need to do an appraisal. And when they do the appraisal, a lot of older apartment buildings are gonna get called up and the values are much lower. So the value will not be the $9 million in total development costs, it'll be something less and so the bank will probably lend it more like 40 to 50% of the total development costs, leaving about half the project um, needing equity investment, which is a pretty big lift. So if you assume a more reasonable equity investment of 25%, that leaves about 30% 30, 30 of the funding in the gap category. Where is that gonna come from um, to do the project? So, um, you know, that might kind of show some like dismal outcomes of the pro forma and, and can these projects actually pencil. And I know in two weeks there's gonna be um, more information on solutions to the housing issues, but I just wanted to highlight three particular categories to, to help us think about ways to move past this. One is just, you know, let's use all the tools that we currently have available to the maximum extent possible, and we've seen that happen with the new downtown um, housing incentive for property tax um, exemption over a 12-year period to really make a difference in the, in the pro formas. You know, we think that will help you know, solve maybe 50% of the gap, but not all of it. Um, there's other things that can be done in terms of partnering between the private and public sector around publicly owned land or parking strategies. Um, Another category is really on the developer side, which is more how can they be creative to marry land uses that really do pencil with those that are struggling a little bit more financially. So maybe a hotel mixed with residential um, is one option. And then the third is really trying to bring forward some more complicated financing tools that we're still learning about. Opportunity zones are something new that we're still figuring out. 
Um, there's a HUD 221-D4 loan guarantee that developers outside of Alaska often use to um, basically backstop a loan that the bank provides and would allow the bank to land at a, a larger rate. Um, so that's something to look at, it, although I understand it's, it takes more time to fill out the paperwork and figure that one out. And then another one is like a new sort of mezzanine fund that would be nice to have at the state level um, that would allow projects to receive financing um, that would bridge that gap between what the bank can lend and what a reasonable equity investment is. So we think there are some solutions to help these pro formas and make the project's pencil a bit better. And lastly, I guess I would just say, um, you know, again, really the numbers tell a story, but it's really about why are we even thinking about this? And, you know, the pictures that we have up here are about some cool, fun, exciting new housing. If that doesn't do it for you, I think there's another argument that's really important, which is as a community, we have to think about our own bank account and what the economics of our community are. So if you took the 34 units of housing downtown um, on a half acre lot, that would yield about $8.50 per land square foot in property tax revenue. The same half acre lot with two half a million dollar single family detached homes would yield only 68 cents per land square foot. So you get 12 times the amount of property tax revenue um, if you build more intensely in, in our urban areas. If we scale that up to say 100 acres, which I think we can do, it's the size of two diamond centers, you know, redevelop an area like that, we could bring in as much as $34 million in new property tax revenue, which could bring 100 to 200 new police officers or firefighters and allow us to really continue to provide the services and the, and the community that we need in Anchorage. Thank you. Thank you, Shanna. It's a great way to get us started. Now we're gonna hear from Tyler Robinson with Cookinland Housing Authority. Thank you and good evening. Um, I, I love following such a detailed and thorough presenter like Shanna. And I, I think what I would also say is um, Shanna knows a lot about development, but the thing is she's not a developer, so you can believe what she says. <laughs> it's really important. I wasn't talking about you, Greg. You can kind of half believe me because I'm like a nonprofit developer, but um, in any event, I think it's really important that we understand the feasibility. I'm gonna to touch on the feasibility. I'm gonna to touch on a little bit of our supply issues um, and talk a little bit about our vision um, that we have for our community and try to also temper our long-term vision and, and really compelling information that Shanna put out there with the need to see incremental change in our community. So I know you all are here because you are Yimbies, right? You are yes in my backyarders. You're not the, the no in my backyarders or cave people, the citizens against virtually everything. You are here because you believe there should be some change and you want to work and advocate for those ch that change. And I, I thank a Common Ground for hosting this series because I think, I think we can all become Yimbies if we understand the issues a little bit better. If we simply suggest that a developer is over here trying to make the most money and a community member is over here saying no to everything, um, we really don't understand what is at play, and I think that's, um, thank you for having this conversation. Cook Inlet Housing um, does build the types of, uh, I think, uh, images of housing that we put in our comprehensive plans. We, we, uh, but fundamentally, we use housing as a tool in our community development work. So our, ha our housing is not to just build the housing per se, but to use that tool in a variety of neighborhoods, communities, um, and more recently in downtown 
to really do a couple of things. One is to see if our investment both can provide a level of affordability for the long term, but also can catalyze additional investment in those neighborhoods. And that doesn't just mean more housing, but that means other things that ultimately bring more housing, investments in parks and trails and schools and those sorts of things. But we also are very willing to be the community's guinea pig. So we're willing to sort of go out there and say, hey, if we do a few of these things, we're willing to share back with what worked financially, what didn't work, what was accepted in the market, what was not, what our challenges were with permitting and so on and so forth. So I just uh, I, I, I use us as a tool. That's what we think we're here for and hopefully we deliver good products as well. Um, I know last time you talked about housing supply, but I always have to frame um, you know, kind of what we're, what we're dealing with. And simply put, we're a relatively young city with a lot of old housing. Right? So when, when I think that this was a place in before 1970 that had less than 50,000 people, and by 1990 had 220,000 people, it's not surprising that a majority of our housing was built in that 15-year period from the 70s to mid-80s. It's also not surprising, unfortunately, that that is still here, right? That's, um, that split-level 70s dream home is the one I call home, actually, right? So um, those, that is the housing stock that we live in, and when we... Flash forward to our more recent times, so from 2000 on, we did have a lot of new development in the early 2000s. And, and while that yellow bar says multifamily, the reality is, is the multifamily that it's really referring to is triplexes and fourplexes that are part of condominium developments. They're not the images of the multifamily that Shanna was putting up there. But what I think is most interesting and sort of perplexing about this slide, it begins in 2008. And from a period of 2008 to 2016, nine years, that's before the recession, we had sub 5% vacancy in each of those years. So in other words, 90, over 95 and sometimes 97% of our housing was occupied. And yet this was the production that we were seeing. So we know fundamentally that the market was not producing something that it would generally have done. Um, and, and those are two reasons, and they're, they're, they're more than two reasons, but, but a couple that are compelling is the feasibility issue that is tied directly to the fact that we had run out of the easy land to develop, right? So we were sort of both forced to look at a new housing type, and then we, we, when confronted with it, it turns out that it was hard to deliver in the market. This despite, we're going on nearly 20 years of having adopted Anchorage 2020, our comprehensive plan and the plans that followed after them, um, and there have been numerous ones, but, but in that plan we rightly said, hey, let's, let's invest in our downtown core, let's invest in our employment centers in Midtown, in UMED, let's invest in our town centers. And I think, you know, so all of this is going on where we're saying, from, at least from a policy standpoint, if you read the comprehensive plan and believe that our policymakers really believed it, which I think in and of itself was a question, um, but I think fundamentally we realized that it wasn't happening on its own, right? How, how long had we in Anchorage just simply said, hey, let's just react to whatever happens in the market? I mean, after all, this is a town that had been through boom periods, right? We were used to responding and reacting to development, not actually working with it and guiding it and incentivizing it. And that is sort of our lesson learned as we start talking about these tools that are finally being implemented in our toolkit. Had that tax abatement been offered in 2006 in the downtown code, those, those developments would be coming off the tax rules today. Just to, uh, I think, talk about feasibility, maybe in a little more intuitive way, um, Shanna used a lot of fancy numbers and a lot of units, and, and uh, sometimes I can follow it. 
But I think, just, just think about it in this way. I mean, this also occurs down on the micro level in an infill and redevelopment in all of our neighborhoods. And we've done, we've done close to 100 of, of market rate, either home ownership or uh, infill uh, rental houses in, in all kinds of neighborhoods. And I'll, I'll just direct your attention to the bottom two slides. So on the right is a 1950s fourplex also with a sort of modified trailer on the site. So it, it goes for a fiveplex, right? It's tax assessed for a little under $400,000. I'll bet you you could pick it up for 360 today. So what you're, what you're fundamentally looking at is units that run for $80,000 a unit, $70,000 a unit. Now on the left, it's not that you know, fancy yet, but is our new fourplex that we're building directly next door. It's our take on the old box. It's a, it's a stacked, fourplex with two bedroom units, it's modern, it's got high ceilings, but it's also modest. We didn't go over the top for the neighborhood. Yet not going big still costs $960,000 to develop in our town. So you do the math, that's a $240,000 unit compared to a unit that maybe is less than 80,000. So again, I can even do that math, that's a third. And so I ask you this, do you think I can get three times the rent for this same product in this neighborhood, right? So thank you, Carol, my boss is here. Thank you for letting me convince you to do the project anyway, but we can talk about why we did that later. So um, I think along that, those lines, um, we have a lot of challenges in this town. You'll hear a lot of conversation about regulations and how challenging it is. Um, but there's this interesting threshold that exists in our zoning and building codes and even just in our policies that exists when we go from two units to three units on a lot. Just that simple line. So in the financing world, you really don't cross the line until you get above four units. But for whatever reason, we have decided that, that two to three is the threshold that, that dictates where you go um, when you enter the permit process. So suddenly, you're designing for an on-site drainage system. You're connecting to a storm sewer system. You might even be building a portion of that storm sewer system if it doesn't exist or it's of poor quality. You're looking at lighting. You're looking at traffic and parking in a different way. All of these things are a threshold. So then if we really start to want those small multifamily, uh, medium density in our, in our community, we have to understand the impediments that we're putting out there to them. So, shameless plug for another project that we're working on, May the 4th in this room, the culmination of a Fairview design competition where five teams are actually gonna explore and tell you what challenges and impediments they discovered through the design process. So, back to that vision part, I had to go back and find a TV show of the same vintage of our housing stock. And I, I think about this a lot because I'm a, I'm a reformed long-range planner. And what we say, and I think what Michelle will talk about, is we, you know, in long-range planning, you're really talking about 20 and 30 years. You're really saying, how can our community grow, not just in the interim, but really for the long term? You know, at the same time, you know, I, I, I have kids. I, I don't really want to wait around 20 or 30 years to see what happens to my city. And so I think, you know, sometimes we have to remember that maybe we just got a little more Gilligan than we do Thurston Howell in us, and it's okay to temper the dream a little bit, right? I think that so often we focus on what is a really high bar, and we don't focus enough on the things that might move us along in the, in the year two, year three, year four, year five. And so with that, I, I present to you two mixed-use buildings. Um, the one at the top may look familiar. It's Rustic Goat and Turnigan Crossing. It's what's called horizontal mixed use. And the one in the bottom, I don't know what it's called. I just Googled mixed use. 
right? And that's just like the, one of the million images that is sort of the prototypical mixed-use building. And that's the one that we put in a lot of our plans, right? But I will tell you this, one of these is feasible in Anchorage, we know for a fact. One of them may be feasible. So can we learn a little bit from the ones that we know we're moving forward? And so take a step back and say, hey, having a few more rustic goats and infill townhouse development in our neighborhoods might also be something worth celebrating and understanding rather than always chasing, I don't know, the unicorn. So I'll leave, it, I'll leave with this. Um, when this article first came out, and I was really thrilled to see our assembly vote 10 to 1 in favor of a major implementation step of our downtown plan. Um, after all, like I said, you know, we adopted a plan in 2006, and despite the emphasis on housing, we've had no housing built since that plan was adopted, and that included some pretty good economic times. But the article in the paper initially was, developers win 12-year tax break. Now just think about the difference in conversation that you would have with that as sort of the starting point of this tool versus the one that eventually got changed, I think in no small part because of somebody on this panel making a little noise to the Daily News. But the point is the way that we actually talk about these things, the way that we talk about the actual facts associated with the, the, the real feasibility challenges, I think can help us all arrive to some common ground in our policies and our incentives and our vision moving forward. Thank you. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's program is part two of The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, presented by Alaska Common Ground. Great, thank you, Tyler. Now we're gonna hear from Michelle McNulty from the municipality. Good evening. Um, Tyler set me up very well for my conversation. Um, so my, I'm the head of the planning department at the municipality and the department includes a lot of uh, current planners. Some might be reformed as well. Um, but we include the transportation planning, uh, long range planning, which oversees and implements the, um, the long range visions, the comprehensive plans and district plans, and as well as a current planning um, specialist who really implement Title 21. Um, and so I'm gonna talk from a really high level perspective of some of the barriers that we see as um, our department pretty much um, touches the majority of the projects that come through, come through the city. So I think um, Shanna did a really good job at explaining why we should all care and kind of what the, the issue is, but I think it's also important to remind everybody that we're growing. Uh, we are anticipating about 64,000 new residents in Anchorage, uh, Anchorage wide by 2040. 47,000 of those people are expected to live in the Anchorage Bowl, and that translates to about 21,000 um, 21, housing units that need to come online. Um, that, so that's about 840 houses annually that are needed to, to meet that need. And as the numbers that both Shanna and Tyler just showed, we're not achieving that. We also have um, a changing demographic. Uh, by 2035, about 18% of our population is going to be over 65. Our household sizes are shrinking, and it's anticipated that our buying power is going to also, which means that the housing type that we're used to is going to change. Uh, we're going to start seeing a more demand for multifamily, compact, affordable housing that's near transit. So where are we going to accommodate this growth? 
pretty much we need an area the size of Northeast Anchorage uh, to, to get all that housing online. And we don't have that anymore. Uh, we have enough residential, uh, vacant residential land to accommodate about 9,700 of these houses. The other 11,300 will need to come through redevelopment of existing residential lands and through providing uh, residential and commercially zoned lands. So there's a few areas uh, that will kind of start to absorb that growth and where we're gonna see the change. And that's areas that are already near the major medical, um, commercial and employment centers that have access to transit and to bike and ped routes. Um, areas that are already going undergoing change where development and redevestment are anticipated to continue, uh, where the zoning already allows for that higher density and where there's infrastructure. This map um, kind of shows where these areas that kind of meet all those criteria are located. The area in red or maroon is where we see the significant growth happening. The brown color for moderate growth and the beige for um, little growth. There's not a lot of area taking the brunt of all the, the growth that we need. Um, and we're not achieving the densities that are required are exasperating the problem. So how did we get here? Tyler touched on the fact that we've had um, several plans in place. Um, Area-wide zoning went into effect in 1983, and that was the last time we had a, a land use plan map until 2017 when the newest one was adopted. In 2002, we did have a uh, policy map that got of, uh, adopted with the 20, um, 2020 comprehensive plan. And that laid out a vision, but it didn't really provide the framework that was necessary to really identify how much land do we need and where does it need to go? And not just to account for our residential lands, but to accommodate for the commercial and the industrial lands that are gonna provide the, the jobs for the people who are gonna live here. So um, we do now have this plan and we're excited about that. But we also have a, a history of development patterns. So like many West Coast cities, Anchorage was designed uh, with the car in mind. We have a lot of wide roads with little pedestrian and, and bike access. Um, we have a very incomplete infrastructure grid and that includes subpar constructed streets, uh, missing utility links. And our primary funding source for these improvements are through bonding, which really limits our ability to um, make significant improvements on an annual basis. So a lot of times these costs uh, to improve an area such as this, this is Chugachway and Spinard, um, which is an area that's ripe for, for reinvestment, but there's a lot of infrastructure that has to get brought in to make that happen. And a lot of times we see projects that come through and the, the developer realizes they're gonna have to bring in, um, reconstruct the road, bring in the utilities, bring in the sidewalks, and that either kills the project or it significantly uh, reduces the scale of that project, meaning that we don't see the densities that we need. Um, and then those costs also get passed on to the end user, which is usually the homeowner or the home buyer or the renter. Um, we also lack just a traditional main street architectural form. form so um, a lot, it's easier to kind of infill where there's already um, retail and other uh, amenities that make it a trade-off to uh, live in a smaller compact area. And then there's just the infill challenges of compatibility. We have, um, where we have lands to redevelop, as, as Tyler's mentioned, it's not easy to develop. Um, if there's even good soils there, there's probably um, already constructed or context of the neighborhood. Um, and then just also the fear about um, adding pressures to the existing infrastructure. 
And then one of the biggest challenges we see is just with uh, Title 21, the land use code. And the good news, I say this for last because it's a challenge, but there's also a lot of positive that's happening with this. Um, but, you know, the new Title 21 was adopted in 2015. It underwent a 12-year rewrite. That's a long period of uncertainty. Um, there was a lot of conflict in the code and what our framework had said that we wanted to see. And so um, there was a lot that was built during that time that didn't achieve the goals of where we really need our vision to go. Um, and then it was also adopted prior to the land use plan. So one of the problems that we're seeing or one of the challenges that the planning department has is that we have this new uh, framework and a land use plan, which I think is a really great plan, um, but it also requires a lot of tools to implement and we don't have those tools. So we're constantly trying, you know, the planning department is trying to um, amend you know, unco unforeseen consequences. So we're doing a lot of code amendments and then also creating a lot of the new tools, which is really good, but it does create a delay on a lot of the projects that are coming forward and also provides that uncertainty. But I did wanna um, kind of end on a positive note to talk about the things that we can do through Title 21. Um, and that is, um, you know, we are creating a lot of flexibility to allow the density to go on smaller lots so that we can achieve our density. Uh, we've recently passed uh, the ordinance for accessory dwelling units, which allows them to be on any zoning district, residentially zoned district, and then just creating mixed use uh, residential districts. We're also amending some of the tools that we already have in place. We know that we require too much parking, and so um, working on getting um, just inherent by right parking reductions, making that process easier, working on uh, residential driveways and private streets so we can start um, having more efficient use of our land, um, working on actually identifying where our reinvestment focus areas are gonna be so that we can start working towards putting a, you know, more of our, our eggs in one basket so that we're not just spreading all of our resources so thin. And a lot of other tools to help really um, become uh, solving some of these uh, barriers. So I couldn't agree more though with Tyler's call for Yambies because a lot of this is gonna be a cultural shift for Anchorage and I see that as one of the biggest barriers that we have. Um, but then I look around the room and I see all the people who are interested in learning more about this, these issues and coming, you know, the idea of the common ground. And I see all the people who are working in these um, housing groups. And so I feel very hopeful that we're going to be able to uh, really get to, to providing some of the solutions. Good evening. Uh, my name is Greg Strabana and I am the developer that... Uh, Tyler so generously called me. So I'm hopeful that, um, that this goes well and uh, Tyler won't have to throw anything at me afterwards. But I've been asked to come here and speak uh, from the perspective of a market rate uh, multi-state uh, developer. I wanna talk a little bit about uh, who we are and I've got 12 minutes and so um, I will try and move through here pretty quickly and then we'll go through and we'll touch base about some um, questions afterwards. So uh, with respect to Widener Apartment Homes, we've been around uh, for 42 years as a company. Uh, we've been here in the state of Alaska for about 40 years and we own and operate apartment communities and our strategy is long-term growth, long-term holds. Um, we do most of our work through acquisitions, most of our growth through acquisitions and right now we're about 54,000 units and about 275 units. 
So I've been asked to talk about a couple of things. One of them is how our communities are selected for investment. How does a market rate provider go and select units for investment? So a couple of different things happen. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what our development strategy is right now. Currently, we have eight projects under development, just over 2,200 units in multiple different cities, um, multiple different states. And we also have 13 projects under consideration for 2020 and beyond. That's totaling 6,100 units, uh, and that's throughout the country, all over the place. And so those are in various different stages of development, and we pick different areas for different reasons, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. I wanted to show you one of the ones that we're developing, and some of the panelists here talked about mixed-use, multifamily, um, uh, residential development. This is a project, this is phase three of a building called Wooden Creek. That's in Woodenville, Washington. If you know Woodenville, it's really a town that's been built on wine development over the last number of years. The wine industry is going very large here, but we're helping to redevelop the downtown core. We'll probably put somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 to 900 units uh, there, dependent upon what the uh, rate of absorption is. Uh, we're very excited about this. We've worked very closely with the city of Woodenville in order to help make this uh, project a reality. It's been very expensive. So how are communities selected uh, for investment? Um, well, a couple of different things. Um, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page. Job, uh, the job market and job creation is one of the key factors that we look at and any other developer looks at. Why? Well, it's pretty simple. Jobs uh, beget need for housing, beget need for more people, beget need for more mass transit and op ways for people to move around. So we look primarily at the job market um, to see how things are going in each one of these particular um, regions to see whether or not that's a good place to put uh, money at. Uh, typically, we'll look at what the household formation numbers look like, what sort of uh, income levels and what sort of education levels there are in order to de develop and uh, plan uh, to put in class A um, market rate housing. Secondly, we look at population trends. Where are people moving, right? Where are they moving into and where they're moving out of? Um, the, the more uh, that you have a stable base of population, the more likely they are to be able to have a need for housing. And so as we look uh, at those communities that have trends that are on the upswing, that seems to be a place where we want to be early on. Um, you're looking at places like Seattle that has had historically over the course of the last four or five years, anywhere from 12 to 15,000 units a year being built within the city core. Now is probably the wrong time to be there to try and build. If you were there four years ago, that might be something. Thing, but the cost uh, there is, is tremendous. We also look at the acquisition potential versus replacement costs. So what I mean by that is as you look at a particular region, you have to see whether or not your strategy is going to be to buy existing units or uh, develop them. That's the replacement cost for new projects. One of the things that one of the panelists talked about earlier today was the risk that you put in as a developer. Because think about it, if I'm gonna take $5 million and I'm gonna invest it in either a development project or an acquisition project, the day that that project closes, for example, we closed on a building in Wisconsin on Friday. It's 314 units. On Saturday, we're collecting rents and we're starting to make money on that investment. In the development cycle, there could be something, it could be two years, three years, four years, five years before you start to see any of that money come back to you. And so acquisition potential versus replacement costs is an important factor for us. We also do a needs-based assessment. And what I mean by that is pretty simple. 
If you have the opportunity to take capital and move it anywhere to develop, you really want to see it go to a place where that capital is going to be utilized and it's going to be appreciated and you're going to be able to see growth pretty quickly. We've started to, as a result of this particular um, strategy, we've started to take a look at secondary and tertiary markets to go ahead and put in capital. Eastern Washington, if anybody's familiar with, there's a lot of small towns there that haven't seen the kind of economic revitalization west of the, the, the Cascades. So in Eastern Washington, there's a lot of smaller communities there. However, those communities also need new housing. And so we started to see ourselves um, start putting in uh, new developments uh, scaled correctly for each one of those markets. Riverside 9 is a 335-unit apartment community in Wenatchee, Washington that we built. Wenatchee had not seen any new housing of any scale for 20 years. So putting that project in, we leased that project up in about a month and a half, believe it or not, 335 units. It was rightly located. It was in a place that was right off of a trail along the Columbia River, very close to Pibus Market, which is a small scale of the Pioneer Square Market. Very well located, very well amenitized, and very well received by that market. I'll tell you what has happened as a result of that success. We now have two other projects in Wenatchee that we're building right now, a 160 unit community and another one that is a public-private partnership with the city of Wenatchee where they are building the parking structure. It's a structured parking, uh, two levels and then five over. The, the city's building that and they will maintain uh, the, the parking and the parking revenue that comes as a result of that. And we'll be building the apartments uh, above and adjacent. So I'm gonna put up a couple of things that we hear all the time. Some of the common concerns we hear regarding market rate development. And remember, we're a market rate developer. We, um, we, we don't take any government subsidy. Um, and so people say this and we, we hear this and it's, it's fair enough. And afterwards, you won't have to raise your hand, but I'll ask if anybody's ever said one of these things, thought one of these things, or wrote one of these things in uh, the comments section of the newspaper. Developers in my city are only building luxury housing. Developers aren't building anything that ordinary people can afford. That type of building isn't going to help the people who truly need assistance. Anybody brave enough to raise their hands to see if they've said that? Okay, it's fair. It's fair to a certain extent. What I'll say to you is that many times the conventional belief is that greed is the motivation there. And as is pointed out by Shannon a little bit earlier, you know, clearly developers are in the business of making profit. There's a lot of risk that happens with the money that they put out there in the development cycle. Uh, but the actual issues surrounding what gets built, when it's built, for whom it's built, are much more complex. And a, and a better reading of that says we have to take a look at the cost factors. We have to look, take a look at the regulatory factors. And those are two issues that I want to talk about a little bit further. Cost of development. So new construction is expensive. Um, so average cost of construction in 2017, according to Fannie Mae for apartment projects, were $192 per square foot. Uh, roughly 230 to 250 is that delta up here in Anchorage. And I think on a slide earlier, I think somebody had 240 or 250. So we were right on. And at the same time, median uh, construction, according to the NAHB, the National Association of Home Builders, was about $103 per square foot. Higher costs translate to higher rents in order to project to pencil. What that means really is that in order for us to be able to build that project, you have to be able to get rents that will support that. Otherwise, no bank's going to lend you that money. We talked about that earlier before. You have to be able to support that, especially if, you don't, if you're not capitalized. 
Developers are therefore trying to meet uh, two different uh, goals, right? Uh, they need to build new housing stock and they also need to deliver a financially viable project. So I wanna go and talk about a specific project. This is an actual example uh, from here in Alaska. And this is something that we uh, were planning on um, putting forth and, and deciding whether or not this was gonna be a financially fe uh, feasible project for us. So it was a pro forma for 160 unit apartment project. And here is the construction cost. That's all in uh, soft and hard costs are about $35.5 million, which equals about $221,000 a door or $290 a square foot. So as we start underwriting these, anybody who does underwriting uh, knows that you utilize a capitalization rate. The cap rate really talks a little bit about value. It talks about what, you're accept, what you will accept um, as a developer, right? And I wanna say that we uh, ran this at a five cap, which nobody's getting a five cap right now, but we decided to do that. And in talking with local developers here, talking with others who've been building over the course of the last few years, Five is not gonna work, but let's say we did underwrite it at a five cap. Here are our numbers. That yields a value of $35.1 million, which is about $219,000 a door. Anybody notice something there? Any disconnect? Yeah, it's just right under, right? So the, the value, right, if we were able to get a five cap was just short, about $400,000 short of the construction cost, right? And short of, of what the construction cost per door. A more realistic number is about six and three quarters. We've had others folks say seven, eight, nine. So let me run those numbers out. Underwriting at a six and three quarter cap yields you a value of $26 million or 162 a door. Seven cap, eight cap, look at that. And so what really happens is that you're building something, right? That doesn't make any sense. And here's the kicker folks. We did this in anticipation and thinking about um, property tax abatement. And so those tools that are now part of the uh, tool, toolbox, but we, we did it at that time uh, with no real estate taxes. So those numbers that I underwrote that at 35.1 is with no, no property taxes. There's a delta there, eight, $9 million, you know, and it just, it's not feasible in order to build. Interesting story about this particular project. Normally, the higher the density, the less the per unit cost is going to be, right? So you're able to spread that cost out among more units. We actually performed this trying to do something that hadn't been done here before in scale, and that was to, um, to have um, uh, smaller units uh, in there. We call them micro units, and those were gonna be a concept that we didn't know whether or not was gonna work here, but we were willing to maybe try. So even though we had micro units in there, even though that increased the unit count, the numbers just didn't make sense. The other thing I want to talk about was the hidden cost of excessive regulation. So this is a 2018 study, and we'll read through this if you'd like, but it really talks about multifamily development and how much regulation happens, right or wrong. And I'm not here to say regulation's bad. I think the city has a, um, a viable interest in regulating what's being built in their, in their town and planning that out for the long term and the short term. However, what we're going to try, talk about is uh, what the net effect is. And if you read through here in red, it says that according to this study that was commissioned by the NAHB and, and the National Multi-Housing Council, upwards of 32%, excuse me, 32.1% was the average cost. Um, and that was for multi-family development, but it, that is the regulation level of the total amount of the development. So about 32% of the cost uh, went to these other regulations. Um, Interestingly enough, in the quartiles, you know, 32.1 is the average, 
42.6 on some projects is how much it really costs in terms of the uh, regulations. So my time is coming. I'm going to go through this a little bit more, but uh, there are a couple of things that I was asked to talk about as well. What are the, some of the incentives and what are the barriers? So in terms of incentives, we've talked about some of these before. So tax increment financing, which is not something that is available here, but I'm, I'm telling you that we are looking at that as a uh, potential way to offset costs for infrastructure in other markets. And perhaps if there's times for questions later, we'll talk about some of these issues in other markets. Uh, rapid response teams that I think uh, really help break through some of the log jams uh, at planning departments, at permitting departments, those sorts of things so we can get review happening quicker and we can put more eyes on projects because the delay that happens. And for example, in the city of Seattle, it, it can take on average upwards of a year and a half to almost two years to get your project through that process. And that's, that's unconscionable and that's why we don't develop in the city that we live in. Um, Infrastructure investment, utilities, utilities alignment, and public-private partnerships, as I talked before. Barriers, um, outdated zoning laws, cost of land and construction continues to be very difficult. Here in uh, Anchorage, as uh, Michelle showed you on the land use plan map, it's very difficult to find contiguous land, and if you do find that land, it's very expensive. If you don't find the land, but you have somebody do that for you, you might be able to bring some land parcels together, um, but the, the type of land needs remediation and that just adds to cost. So I've also said we were gonna talk about some of the things that we're seeing in the market that's shaping both the acquisition um, as well as the development cycle. So 4.6 million new apartments needed by 2030, that's throughout the United States, that's on average. And that's according to uh, the National Apartment Association, which is an average of about 328,000 a year, but we've only been building 243. It's even more dire here in Anchorage. Those numbers um, are drastically smaller, but you're not producing enough for the demand that's gonna be anticipated. In this case, by 2030, I think in the slide that Michelle showed was by 2040. And three demographic factors are driving this phenomenon. These are very important for us to understand. Um, that first one is important. I have um, four children, and three of them are solely in that, uh, in that Gen Y. As a matter of fact, I have a new daughter in love, and she's in there right now um, as well. So they are the ones that are out there looking in the 71 million strong cohort of people are causing immense pressure on the existing housing stock. Um, and you see it every day in every single market that we're in. Um, aging of the baby boomer generation, that also means that we're finding a lot of folks that are not wanting to live in that house anymore. Not, not everybody, but there are a certain amount of folks that want to be able to give up cutting the grass um, and having somebody else take care of the maintenance. Um, I'm going to go here. A couple other things. Construction is being hampered uh, by a lack of labor, and that continues in all markets that we see. Age-friendly housing is becoming a trend, and that means that we're going to be able to develop a housing appropriate for those who are coming into that market, whether they are those um, Gen, Gen Y folks or whether they're seniors coming in for the first time. Policy conversations surrounding greater residential densities. Density is a huge topic uh, in most major markets, particularly in the downtown, the CBD, in the core, and housing affordability concerns. I think we've always heard housing, uh, affordability concerns in individual markets. This is the first time you're starting to see it happen in mass at state legislatures as well as the federal government. You're seeing a lot of our local electeds as well as our uh, uh, senators and, and congressmen talking about that. And efforts at rent control in areas with high demand. Uh, most recently, the 
Uh, Oregon was the first uh, city, to, excuse me, the first state to pass a statewide preemption, excuse me, statewide uh, rent control that caps rents at 7.1% over CPI. And uh, for many various different reasons, um, um, we could have a rent control conversation. I won't do that today, but I'll suffice to say that rent control does nothing to add to the affordability, uh, the stock of affordable apartments. It helps out a few people, primarily the people who are living in those units right then and there. It does nothing to add more units um, to the stock. So in closing, uh, for Widener and all most private developers, real estate development is really a long-term game. It's an entrepreneurial undertaking, and we must believe that uh, this real estate will have sufficient value to compensate us for the time, uh, the labor, and other resources devoted to the project. And, and really, in short, if, if any of that equation doesn't work, then the project just won't move forward and capital flows to other areas. And I'm sad to say that uh, we have not developed here in Anchorage. We've, we've thought about that. We've really spent quite a, a lot of time working with some of the folks here on this stage to try and make financially feasible projects work. And that hasn't, that hasn't happened. So if I go back to that slide that I showed you early on, we have 2,200 units that are being developed in other places uh, right now. We have 6,000 that are on the books that we think are gonna happen over the course of the last couple of years. We're hopeful that at some point when that uh, equation makes much more sense for us, that we'll be back here uh, to be able to build. So um, thank you very much for having me. That's great. Okay, I want to thank all of our panelists for super great information and discussion. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's program was part two of The Housing Continuum, Building a Vibrant Community, presented by Alaska Common Ground. This was recorded at the Anchorage Museum on March 18th. You can find presenter slides and video of the entire program at akcommonground.org. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like it, you can head to the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life informed. This is Alaska Public Media.